Well, good morning, and let me echo just a thank you to Tim and the worship uh, team for helping us for helping us prepare our hearts uh, through singing this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them to Mark chapter 1. Uh, you should know that by now, unless you're visiting. Uh, it's page 837 is where we'll start off uh, this morning in your blue pew Bible. But before uh, we get going, um, as we stand here in the last week of January um, of 2018 and we work towards closing our financial books for 2017, um, I just wanted to take a moment to simply say thank you. Uh, to the whole congregation for um, your generosity um, this whole past year. Um, if you consider uh, the ministry and missions budgets together, um, really because of generosity all throughout the year, but especially at year end, uh, we met both those budgets and then some um, from last year. And then if you also recall in December, uh, we came to you on top of that with some infrastructure needs, uh, significant infrastructure needs that we're going to have to address this year, and so we had a generous donor kind of present a matching gift for the church, um, and, and just for the last three weeks of the year, and, and you guys as the church um, met that matching gift and then some towards long-term improvement, and that is on top of just the normal giving throughout uh, the, uh, for the ministry of the church. So that has just been a huge encouragement for us, and, and here's the thing, we didn't have some creative marketing campaign up here, okay? We didn't have like the thermometer on the stage of where we were each week. We uh, simply, I stood up here, um, casted out the need, and, and Jonathan did as well, and just said, here's something we want you to consider, um, and you guys met that need and then some, and, and so um, I'll just kind of echo the Apostle Paul and the way he talks to a lot of his churches is just praise God for you, praise God for uh, the work that you're doing, including your generosity towards the local church. And, and let me just urge you, uh, as we all move together in this, just more and more uh, to, to sow into the kingdom and what's happening through Grace Church. We, we speak often about how we just feel like God is at an inflection point here uh, and really seeming to do some really great things uh, for his glory through the ministry of Grace Church. And generosity is a huge part of that. And so just simply thank you uh, to you guys for that. Um, well, as we plow ahead in Mark chapter 1, um, last week, if you were here, we saw what a typical day looked like for the life of Jesus. What, what, what did he do in his three years of ministry? What made up his days? And we saw uh, teaching, and we saw exorcisms, and we saw healings. Like, not your typical, typical day. Uh, like, none of you had that typical day. Like, that's not your Tuesday like it was for Jesus. And yet, um, he just, that, Mark is just going to stack those things, teaching and exorcisms and healings over and over again throughout his gospel. And, and this morning we will finish chapter 1. And Mark now is going to kind of lay out um, Jesus' patterns of effectiveness. All right, so I just want to talk about that for a couple minutes. His patterns of effectiveness, um, what made him effective? Because as you read all the gospels, it, the interesting thing about them is we get pretty much two things from every passage. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get, um, on one hand, it's an intimate look into how Jesus did what nobody else could do. He did and did what nobody else could do, and we see his exclusive power uh, to him alone and through which we are saved. But then every passage as well, we also get the fact that, well, why did Jesus waste his time doing three years of ministry? Why didn't he just come and from day one just go right to the cross? 
and accomplish all he needed to accomplish. Why, why, did we, why do we also have these accounts of just an in-depth look into what he did while he was on earth? And, and, and the reason is because he wanted to provide a model of ministry. He wanted to provide a model that people would follow, things uh, that people could do through the power of the Holy Spirit in, uh, in them to, to learn from. Right? So Jesus is our Savior, yes, and amen, and he's also our teacher. And so Mark provides kind of these patterns of effectiveness from Jesus. And if you just think about your life, okay, what's your favorite hobby? Your favorite thing that you're just most passionate about. Maybe that's also your job. Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who your, your job is also your passion. Um, I can guarantee you in the past year, you probably read a book about that. About somebody who's really successful in that hobby or in that job. And, and they describe their patterns of effectiveness for you to learn from. Um, books, blogs, you probably watched videos probably this past week, right? You just love something so much. You want to see, hey, how did this person become successful? What patterns, maybe they don't call it patterns of effectiveness. Maybe they just call it best practices. Maybe it's just principles that you can learn from and then no, you can try to apply so you can become um, successful and passionate like that. Well, um, in that vein, the, the fact that Mark now provides patterns of effectiveness to, um, of, of effective, fruitful ministry, this is something we should all lean in for this morning. This is something we should listen to closely and apply this to our lives, for through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has equipped us to do these as well. So, we're going to finish chapter 1 this morning, but we're going to start just by reading verses 35 through 39. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went out went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Three patterns we're going to see this morning. The first two were in that passage. And first, he was strong in prayer. We're going to spend the most of our time this morning on this first point, okay? Jesus is found praying all over the Gospels. In Mark, we're told uh, that, he, that he did go out to pray. In John, we get a glimpse of the actual words he prayed in some of his prayers. And in Matthew and Luke, we get his teaching to the disciples on how to pray. Jesus praying. Your initial response to just that fact alone might be one of surprise. Why did Jesus have to pray? Like, didn't he know everything? Well, what, wasn't he perfect? Like, isn't that even like, if, could we say, was that a waste of his time? Especially in considering the fact that his time on earth was limited, he had a lot to do. Wasn't prayer just kind of a, a waste of time for him? He doesn't need that. And that response, while maybe somewhat understandable, um, it reveals a misunderstanding of the nature and purpose of prayer. You see, personal prayer, as Jesus models, at its core is relational. It's enjoyable one-on-one -on -one time of communion with the Father. And so this puts on display that the best thing about prayer is not the things you get from prayer. The best thing about prayer is time with God himself. 
think about this. It's not, it's not, it's not hard, it's hard to do, okay? It's, it's not hard to wrap our heads around, because if you just think about somebody you love more than anybody else in this world, who's the person you just love more than anybody in this world? Why do you spend time with them? Why do you make a commitment to spend one-on-one time with them? The reason is, it's simple, right? It's not a trick question. You enjoy it. You don't do it because you needed to. You don't do it just so you can get some benefits from them. It's the difference between obligation and opportunity, okay? We all have people in our lives we are obligated to spend time with, all right? So um, people at school that you just have to go see every day because you go at the same school. People at work, that, that's your job, that's their job. You have to be together whether you like it or not. That's an obligation, Sometimes family, it's an obligation, right? You have to be with them. Extended family, like I don't want to go to Uncle Bill's house every Thanksgiving, but we're going to Uncle Bill's house every Thanksgiving. He's your family, right? And you're just kind of obligated to have to go spend that time with him. And then you have people in your lives that you have the opportunity to spend time with. And you're just kind of hungry for it. And so you're searching your calendar, just how much possible time can I spend with them outside of my, all, my other obligations. And it's best when those two things come together. When the people that you're obligated to spend time with is also the people you love spending time with. And that is what prayer ought to be. That's what Jesus modeled it as, just this intentional, intense prayer because he enjoyed it. Not because he had to, but because he enjoyed communion with the Lord. This is the first of three prayers of Jesus that Mark will record in his gospel. One at the beginning, there'll be another one in the middle, and then there'll be one at the end. And they're all at critical moments in his ministry, and they all occur in what Mark describes as the desolate places. Jesus not only prayed because he enjoyed communion, he prayed for restoration by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it was vital for him, vital for him to have uninterrupted alone time with the Lord. He practiced a pattern of prayer because he was kept strong in prayer. There is strength to be found in intimate moments with the Father. Because let us not forget, Jesus was tempted in every way, we're told. Every flesh temptation that one can have, he experienced. And so prayer was the first line of offense, uh, of offense for him to defend against the temptation to do the things God forbids. Also the temptation to, to not do the things that God commands, right? The best defense, they say, is a good offense. And the best offensive weapon God's people have is prayer. And so listen, it wasn't easy for Jesus to, time, to find the time to pray. Jesus was busy, Okay, because I know uh, if, if you kind of think like me, maybe a little bit of a natural skeptic, uh, you, you kind of read that, you go, um, yeah, Jesus did not have to deal with the schedule that I had to deal with. It was kind of easy for him to find all this time to pray. He was Jesus, but um, he wasn't working long hours that he didn't have any control over. He didn't have a boss he had to answer to. He didn't have bills that needed to be paid. He didn't have kids that needed to be watched. He didn't have houses that needed to be cleaned. Um, in our area especially, you know what, you know the response I get nine out of ten times when I just ask somebody like, hey, how are you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm busy. 
And, okay, part of that is probably because I'm a pastor and they're afraid if they don't say that, I'm going to ask them to do something thereafter. Like, <laughs> pastor, I'm busy. Thank you, right? The best defense is a good offense, all right? So, but, but here's why I don't think that's the only reason. It's because you know what I say nine times out of ten when somebody asks, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm busy. It's not a lie. It's because I am. Like, life is just busy, and that explains most of life for most people in this area at this time in history. But while it may be true that Jesus did not have to raise young children, he didn't have to commute long hours on New Jersey Transit. He didn't have to hold two jobs together. He didn't have to clean a house. He didn't have to drive kids from school to basketball practice to karate to home to get dinner ready to then help with homework and go to bed and start all over again. But let us not be fooled into thinking that Jesus just prayed a lot because he wasn't that busy. Do you remember where we ended last week? The passage where we ended last week, Mark said, the entire city of Capernaum was pressing in on the door of the home that he was staying in to be healed of disease and to be freed from demons. And that began at sundown, which means this went far into the evening. And reminder, there was no modern electricity then. All right, people uh, went to bed when the sun went down, and they woke up when the sun rose up. Like, I personally would have been fine with that kind of lifestyle. Just saying, nighttime's overrated, morning is awesome. Don't argue with me, all right? But here's, here's the thing, that like, it was probably a logistical nightmare for him to do this. Think about this. All there is is maybe some candlelight. After sundown, there's sick people all over. There's demons convulsing on the ground. And yet, he was faithful to say he healed many of both disease and demons. He was busy. And he wasn't just tired or stressed out from daily routines. He had the force of the entire spiritual realm coming down on him. The enemy's only chance, think about this, his only chance to thwart God's purpose in history were these 30 years. To derail Jesus. And so they were relentless on him. And yet, after working long into the night, he still rises early in the morning while it was still dark. Everyone else is still passed out. And he slips into the desolate places for communion, for prayer. It was his pattern of effective ministry. And it started with prayer for restoration and so Simon wakes up after a wild night of healings, which, by the way, was at his house. That's pretty cool. Like, the whole city of Capernaum was at your doorstep. Like, that had to feel pretty good, right? And he wakes up, and he looks out the window, and the crowds are starting to come back again in the morning. And he's like, oh, this is awesome. We're, we're going to do it again. Goes into the bedroom to find Jesus. Where's Jesus? He's gone. He's kind of important in this whole crowd-swelling thing, all right? So he gathers a little search party. They go, and they look for him. And do you, did you hear they kind of rebuked him? What are you doing out here? Everyone is looking for you. The crowds are back. You're the talk of the town, Jesus, at my house. Let's go. Your brand is as hot as it's ever been. We're going straight to the top. Why are you out here wasting time praying? There's work to be done. 
And it's convicting how often we are like Simon and the disciples when it comes to prayer. Where we can be so quick to dismiss the power and importance of prayer, even in the name of being able to do more, even more ministry. Jesus, if you just pray less or just bag it all together, think of all the more people you can heal. You probably could have healed 10 illnesses by now if you didn't get bogged down out here in prayer, isolated by yourself. And now we would never say that out loud. A good Christian would never say that about their life, that that's the way they view prayer. And we will surely always talk about the importance of prayer, but in reality, we often prefer the shotgun one-pump prayer. You know what I mean by that? The 15, 30-second, um, Lord, be over my day, protect those I love, give me wisdom. Okay, let's go. I'm ready to start my day. I've prayed. Now, it's not fair to say everybody is like that, but is there anybody else who's with me there? The, the one pumper? <laughs> Jesus models that intense, isolated prayer is the fuel that effective ministry runs on. With prayer, our ministry can be fruitful and effective for the kingdom and God's glory. Listen, without prayer, our ministry is just keeping busy. The difference of ministry with or without prayer is like the difference of running a marathon and running on the treadmill. You're tired after both. But after one, you've gone 26.2 miles, and the other, you're still standing where you started. So before we move on, if, if we think about how to apply this model that Jesus puts out, I, I, don't, I don't simply want to say, you guys need to pray more. Okay, let's move on to point two. Because that's probably not helpful. It's not been helpful the hundreds of times I've heard it. And surely, I, I don't think I've ever met a believer who said, yeah, I don't need to pray more. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm kind of nailing it right now. All right? Everyone's bogged down by the reality to need to pray more, especially where we are in the West, when, where a lack of prayer is just so prominent. So, yes, and amen, let, let's resolve to pray more, but I, I want to just take it a little bit of a different direction. Maybe the mindset is not, I just need to pray more, but rather, I need to pray differently. So full transparency, going back to sometime in the fall, um, this is an area um, that I've been seeking the grace to grow in, the area of just angst-driven, intense prayer. Part of that flows out from a corporate side and what we're doing this year, February 7th, starting out, the first Wednesday of the even month, but also from a personal, individual standpoint. And as I was preparing this, uh, the, the Holy Spirit just impressed a phrase upon me that has wrecked me. And listen, I didn't hear a voice. If you hear a voice, that's awesome. I've never heard a voice, but I do think the Holy Spirit impresses things on my heart and mind. I don't know how else to put it, but the phrase was this. Stop praying boring prayers. Is it possible, believer, that you and I don't just need to pray more, but we need to pray differently? If we are bored in prayer, it's not because prayer is boring. We are making it boring, and therefore it's an obligation and not an opportunity. I'm not going to ask us to all raise our hands, but I imagine there would be hundreds in here that would probably raise their hand. 
So how do we combat boring prayers? Let's look to the one who knows best, Jesus himself. Because when he taught his disciples to pray, he started with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And listen, if we were to truly dwell on God, even for a few minutes, to just to let our minds go there on who he is, on the things he's done in scripture and in our lives, and the power he's deployed, on the grace he has bestowed, wait and see if your heart rate just starts to rise a little bit. If we were to say, not just hallowed be your name, but if we were to actually hallow his name, that can't be boring. Another pattern from Jesus that can help us is to get alone in the desolate places. Jesus surely could have woke up because it was still dark, everybody else was sleeping, and just prayed where he was. Probably having to share a couch with a few other guys. Probably in a crowded room. Maybe there was a baby crying in the next room. And so he said, no, I need to go out in isolation, where I don't have to worry about praying out loud, where I don't have to worry about how I look, where I don't have to worry about walking or pacing around, where I can just cry out to the Father, get alone in the desolate places. And then the last, just for this morning, we could go all day, but the last and most effective way to avoid boring prayer, let me remind you, I preach this to myself first. The most effective way to avoid boring prayer is to live lives that risk comfort for the kingdom. And passionate prayer will follow. Comfortable is boring. Risky is passionate and interesting. And so let us do things for the kingdom that are outside the box. Do things that make you uncomfortable. Do things that are risky. Do things that are bold. And that is the space where prayer goes from not being this obligation, but an opportunity because I need it. And so this week, you're going to be as busy as you were this last week. But who's going to commit alongside me to to pray bold and expectant, kingdom-exalting, God-glorifying, life-risking prayers? Try me for just this week the first priority for Jesus in the pattern of effective ministry. Okay, let's move on. Don't worry, that point was longer. Don't start freaking out on me. All right, we got two points left. First, Jesus was strong in prayer. Second, he was committed to proclamation. He was committed to proclamation. So back to the story, right? Jesus is questioned, kind of rebuked by his disciples, and Jesus just says, no, let us go on to the next towns. That I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And then he went preaching all throughout synagogues and neighboring towns, casting out demons. Um, that's a little surprising, isn't it? People come to him, Jesus says, hey, there's a crowd, there's more sick people. Well, let's go, let's go. And Jesus says, no, let's move on. I mean, that's kind of harsh, isn't it, Jesus? More sick people, more possessed people, and you're just going to bounce? But we see another example, as we did last week, as we will continue to see, that Jesus did not come to just build a crowd. He didn't come just to build the brand. He didn't build, uh, come to just get as many butts in the seats as he could. He came to preach the good news. His pattern of ministry was not primarily to promote himself. It was to proclaim the gospel and to be the gospel. 
This is not Jesus saying that healing people doesn't matter or, or meeting physical needs we come across is not important, as we'll see in just a couple minutes. But it was a clarifying point for his disciples and for all of us that it is only the message of the gospel which will turn the world upside down. Everything else done out of that is meant to point back to that. The message is central. The message of God's grace being freely offered to sinners who can be transformed from the inside out through repentance and forgiveness. Who can be reconciled to God and feel peace and fulfillment through faith in him who came to lay his life down in their place. Listen, anyone could build a crowd. Anyone could become well-known and famous and go viral, but only Christ can offer salvation through faith in him. And that is why he is committed to proclamation. And so church, let us take note of the place of proclamation in the pattern of effective ministry. We can and should be deeply involved in meeting physical need, in serving and equipping the least of these that God has placed before us, in advocating for the marginalized and the voiceless in biblical justice, but that should never replace the primacy of gospel proclamation. Our purpose is to proclaim and point people to the saving, transformative power of Jesus Christ. And everything else we do, and there is much more we do, is meant to point back to that. Let us say, along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is explosive. And proclaiming that might be costly for us in our culture today. Listen, it may keep us from building a larger crowd here. But let us never dim the lights of unashamed gospel proclamation. All right, let's finish this chapter. Read Matthew 1, 40 to 45. And a leper came to him imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it, and to spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. We saw, first, Jesus was strong in prayer. Second, he was committed to proclamation. And now, third, he was committed to sacrificial action. The flow of this text shows what I just spoke about, that while gospel proclamation is primary, it doesn't stand alone. In order to be effective, the proclamation is joined with compassionate, sacrificial action, faith that leads to works. So Jesus is preaching all around Galilee, and now he enters into this town or starts to approach this town, and a leper comes upon him. 
right off the bat, this is a scene in the ancient world that would attract the attention of anyone who happens to be around. Leprosy was a highly visible skin disease that was thought to be highly contagious and deadly. The Jews were instructed with specific laws about leprosy in the Torah, as outlined in Leviticus 13 and 14, where if somebody had a skin disease, they'd have to go to the priest and be examined. And if it was considered chronic, which meant it was below the surface, he would have to be pronounced unclean and put outside the town in order to protect everybody else. And we read this, the verses will be up behind me, at Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. This was a rare disease. And and if it was healed, which it rarely was, There was a process of having to go be cleansed by the priest before you could be reinstated by the town. And further, it was traditional rule by the time of the first century that a leprous person could not come within 50 paces of another person, written into law. And with all that true, this leper comes right up to Jesus, kneels before him and says, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows he is unclean, and he believes Jesus is able to heal him. Both are needed for it to actually happen. So what will Jesus do? His stock is soaring. People are flocking to him. Is he going to jump back at this repulsive sight of a man who's coming upon him? Is he going to order his disciples to force this guy away so he can go to the synagogue and keep preaching? No. No. And the reason is why, because he was, quote, moved with pity. Looked the man in the eye, had compassion, saw his plight, and he was moved to act. And then he does the unthinkable. He doesn't just say, man, you were clean. Could have just said that. But he puts out his hand and he touches the leper. Nobody touches a leper for they would be in danger of becoming leprous themselves, but not Jesus. This magnifies not only his compassion, but his power over brokenness. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor now down in Charlotte, commenting on this verse, put it in a way that just stirs my heart. I feel like I need to quote him, otherwise I'd be stealing it from him. He said, when he touched the leper, Jesus was not in danger of becoming ritually unclean. No, the leprosy was in danger of being swallowed up by the holiness of Jesus. You see, the holiness of Jesus is more contagious and more powerful than the uncleanness of leprosy. Why is Mark sharing this? Well, in the scriptures, leprosy is a physical disease whose effects has a lot of parallels to the spiritual disease of sin. 
Not that somebody who was leprous was only leprous because of being punished for sin, although that did happen where God would strike someone down with leprosy as a result of unfaithfulness, but rather the symptoms of leprosy are a picture of sin. Think about this with me. Like leprosy, sin is visibly outwardly, but the real danger and threat is deeper than just the surface level skin. Like leprosy, sin is especially dangerous because of how it spreads so quickly. And like leprosy, sin isolates a person and makes them feel unclean, alone, and defiled. And just as the disease of leprosy serves as a picture of sin, so the healing and cleansing of a leper is a picture of what Jesus offers a sinner. And when I say sinner, I don't just mean the really bad ones in the world. I mean me. And I mean you. And I mean everyone who has ever lived. For we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no sliding scale there. Great illustration I've heard is that if you're drowning, it doesn't matter if you're five feet from the dock or 500 yards from the dock, you're still dead. In the same way, there's no sliding scale of pretty good and pretty bad and really bad. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And only Jesus would reach out and touch the leper without fear of being overtaken. And likewise, it is only Jesus who could cleanse a sinner and restore him or her to full spiritual health, full vitality in him, full joy for all of eternity. And so how can this be true for you? We saw it in the text. Like the leper, you first need to know you were unclean. And then second, to trust and believe that Jesus can cleanse you. Do you believe this? Not just that Jesus can restore people, but I want to know, do you believe he can restore you? That he can forgive you? That he can take away your shame and your past and your sin? For there is no sin, no level of uncleanness that deems us unreachable. There's no such thing as too far gone. If you even take a cursory look throughout this book and just read through the pages, you will find men and women that are far worse than you. Men and women that are way more jacked up than you are. And yet they encounter and love the power of Jesus Christ in such a way where they are forever changed. Well, after being healed, Jesus says to him clearly, okay, don't say anything about this. Go to the priest and show off your cleansing, right? He's referring back to the process that was laid out in Leviticus 14, where now a priest would have to examine this man and deem him cleansed. So he says, yes, go to the priest. You've got to do it. But go straight there. And don't tell anybody else what happened on the way. And as we read, he didn't listen. He talked freely about it. He, he spread the news. And, and on one level, I can understand his excitement, I can understand, I mean, what just amazing thing happened. He couldn't help to tell other people about it. But let's not gloss over this. He clearly disregarded Jesus' words. And there was consequences to that. It was costly, just not to him. 
the reason why Jesus wanted to keep things quiet is so that he could freely move and preach in the town he was approaching. But now that the word is out, he can't even enter the town. It was costly. Jesus knew it would be, but his love and his compassion drove him to do it anyway, to take sacrificial action. Okay, give me two minutes to close here. Dial in. This is important. You notice the picture that Mark just painted? Did you notice what happened at the end? He provided a glimpse into the core of the gospel itself. Listen, Jesus traded places with the leper. Jesus was approaching as the one who he could go freely into the town, and, and, and the leper was the one who had to be left out in the desolate places. But because of their encounter, Jesus traded spots. Now the leper was the one who was the center of attention in the town, able to walk in freely, fully cleansed. And because of that, Jesus was out in the desolate places. So while Jesus had power over the disease, he still ended up taking on the consequences, and he took it so the leper could go free. This is a picture of the gospel. Theologians call it double imputation. The, the great exchange. When Jesus went to the cross, which by the way was on a hill outside the city gates, he took the sin of believers and exchanged it with imputing his righteousness onto them. He traded places. What a savior. He's our substitute in the desolate places. Listen, you know what that means? Your, your lust, he takes it. Your pride, he takes it. Your idolatry, he takes it. Your greed, he takes it. Your racism, he takes it. Your selfishness, he takes it. And he pays the price. He paid it all. And he is left to take the punishment while you stand cleansed and righteous and perfect and it was costly and he knew it would be and he did it anyway. He paid it all. Sacrificial action. This is the pattern of effective ministry. Strong in prayer. Commit to proclamation and take sacrificial action. And so as we close our service, we're going to do it with the time of how we started, with the time of singing. The singing before was to prepare our hearts for God's word, and now, yes and amen, the singing is a response to God's word. Come, let us worship the king. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for how it tells us truth, truth about ourselves, truth about you, and truth about what you did to set us free. Father, let this be true of every person in this room. Let Jesus not just be somebody's teacher, but let him be our savior. Let it be true for us that we can say with confidence, he paid it all. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.